0: You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast, bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers.
1: Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks. Sheena Kamal. Matthew Quick. J.T. Ellison.
0: Walt D. Williams. Brad Ford, Corey. Dr. O. Vincent. Robin. Maugh.
1: Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher.
0: Sherlene Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Super excited to have James Rollins. Uh, We are here to talk about his brand new book that's just releasing. It's called Kingdom of Bones, and uh, I've had a chance to read uh, the advanced reader copy of this. And, uh, you know, in typical James (laughs) fashion, it it, it, it ramped up and didn't let go of me until the very end, James. Um, So... You know, I, I don't know what more to say other than it's a uh, it's a James Rollins book, 100. <laughs> percent
2: Hey, in a pandemic, the... you know, I've got to at least you know, you know, for me alone, it's it's, it's I have to have this armchair adventure. <laughs> it's, right, we're all stuck in our in our homes for the last two years. It's uh, when I was writing this story, it was much a you know I was having as much fun writing it as hopefully people are going to do uh, reading it.
0: Yeah, um, we talked uh, last a. Uh, uh, a year or so ago and did this book have a different title at the time
2: it did Um, it was going to be called the savage zone but that's right again authors have no say over what what their titles are (laughs) they're like no we liked it initially but now that we're thinking about it no let's you know give me some other options so you know i just gave them you know 15 different options they passed the sales and marketing department and kingdom of bones was uh (laughs) was the one they decided they'd like more so well that's one thing about uh about publishing is we have very little control over titles and and, and cover you know pretty much yeah. it's like do you like this cover yes that's the only the only response they want from you <laughs> um well speaking of pandemics this this book has
0: a um deals with the uh, w- with that subject matter in a way um it, were you um Was there any trepidation around, you know, kind of tackling this subject matter or was this something that you had already been researching? And I know there's a lot of kind of pre-research that goes into your books, but kind of how did how
2: did that storyline come about? Well, it came about because of an article I read a new scientist back in the beginning of 2019. Okay, It was asking, you know, when can we expect the next global pandemic? And I thought, well, that's interesting, you know, I'm reading the article about these virus hunters and people searching these uh, exotic corners of the world, you know, getting samples from bats and other exotic species looking for the uh, pathogen that might be, uh, you know, disease X, the the pathogen that all that terrifies all virologists. It's the pathogen that is highly contagious and has no cure. So I thought, well, that's interesting. But I was worried because I'd already done pandemic novels in the past. There was uh, The Seventh Plague was a pandemic novel. Right. Um, so I didn't really want to do another pandemic novel, but I was the more I was you know, sort of following this thread, I, I, I found more about the weird biology of viruses, the, the strange way they're connected to uh, our own evolutionary history, and I became sort of intrigued about doing a, a viral novel, sort of shining a light on the weirdness of viruses in general. So I, you know, come at the end of 2019, I, you know, I pitched this uh, story idea to my editor, and she said, "Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool," you know. Let's, let's go, you know, go run with that. So I began, you know, working on the story, and I and uh, so the Last Odyssey came out uh, just as the pandemic was starting, and I had about halfway through Kingdom of Bones at that point. And my editor then, of course, called me back and said, "Did any of the virologists you were speaking to did they did they warn you about what was going to happen? Did you was there any inklings that there's that this was going to occur? Yes, uh, you know, how?" how weird it is that you're writing a, a virus novel just as a pandemic's beginning. Right. And, and at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, a bit of serendipity that this is happening. Not, 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 not a good serendipity. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I'm thinking who's going to want to read a book about viruses in the middle of a pandemic. You're probably going to be sick and tired of it. So there was a lot of, you know, should I really write this? You know, is it, is it, uh, not insulting, but is it uh, is it is it is it rude to sort of uh, tackle this novel when, when people are suffering from a viral pandemic? Right. Is it you know is it best you know Can I write a popcorn adventure novel, a big roller coaster, about a virus when people are dying? Uh, you know. So so I was on the fence about throwing the entire idea away, um, but I kept working on it. And because uh, again we're halfway done, it's hard to stop a novel. So your trains, you know, your train tracks are laid. You know, well, I'm just gonna you know, finish writing it. Which was a challenge in and of itself because uh I had to keep tweaking this novel as I was writing it because, you know, the the zeitgeist of of, of of the the average reader's knowledge of viruses has expanded over this past year. So, 100%. you know, things I'm you know I had to I had to to make sure that you know, all my details were accurate, to make sure that what I was saying uh, did not seem out of sorts with what was happening with the current pandemic. So there's a lot of tweaking that was involved in writing the novel during this pandemic.
0: So. Um- a popcorn adventure is exactly how I described this book to a friend of mine just this morning. We were talking about it and I said this would make an epic summer tentpole popcorn adventure movie. This would be because you you know you it, at the beginning you you push us off that cart that of the roller coaster and and you know we're in it, it's just immediately um did the reality of a global pandemic and how that all unfolded? Did that sort of ratchet up um the level of um, adventure and tension that the book came about? Did, because it 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 feels like it was written very close to the bone, very raw. Um I, I, I'm, you know, you know, we we can interpret and and project our own stuff onto books that we're reading. But to me it it very much had that. Uh, sense of immediacy um, to it. Do, do you feel like that affected the writing at all? I think it did because,
2: you know, I, I love doing research and, yeah. uh, you know, probably too much and I probably make my readers read too much of my research at times. Uh, like, But, uh, you know, when you're in the midst of a viral pandemic and now you're thinking about, you know, how am I going to protect my own life or the or right. life of my family members? Uh, now it becomes not just a matter of what's cool to put in a novel. It's like, what do I need to know? that's going to potentially save my life and save other people's lives. And I was also curious, you know, was this virus, you know, produced in the lab? Was it engineered? You know, I'm trying to do research to follow through that, you know, is it possible what's going on? You know, why are bats such a, a vector for, for disease, uh, for viral diseases? Why everybody seems to focus in on bats? Uh, so a lot of these questions that were raising in my own mind during the pandemic, uh, I would research. Uh, just because I was curious to get the answer. And I found out that, weirdly, they were dovetailing into the adventure I wanted to tell. So it was, uh, it was a, a combination of both my self-interest, self-preservation, and uh, finding more intriguing details to sprinkle throughout the novel.
0: So this is the 16th Sigma Force novel, is that right?
2: It is. Uh, again, it's always hard for me to to exactly tally the number because Sandstorm— I sort of describe it as the prequel to the novel, right. even though it is count, counted as number one because Sigma Force is more sort of a the support team for the main cast of characters. Right, but uh, that is where Sigma is first introduced, and so we do count that as book number one. So this would then be book number sixteen.
0: So this is a cast of characters that you are uh, intimate with. I mean, you know these people, you know, back to front, and and uh, you know, there's a certain freedom that comes with writing. Uh, a long-running series, the the world building, uh, if you will, is is kind of in place already. We we understand the world that the story is going to take place in. We understand the role of the characters, and we understand some of their personal lives that have kind of unfolded throughout the books. Um, what are some of the challenges? that come with we we know what all the benefits are of running of writing a long running series but what are some of the challenges of keeping this group together uh and and there have been some people that have you know come and gone but um what are some of the the challenges of of keeping this ball rolling and you know maintaining relationships and you know their place in the world and all of that stuff
2: well initially i was not planning on doing the series as i mentioned before sandstorm might be the first book in the series, because that's when I introduced Sigma. Right. Uh, so I was getting a lot of pressure from my publishing house, you know, Jim, do a series, do a series. Uh, all my early stories were standalone adventures, you know, from Subtraining to Excavation, Deep Fathom to Amazonia. They're all, uh, you know, separate cast of characters, they're standalone adventures. And I resisted doing the series because I had an issue with ser- doing a series. And it's what I call, I met, maybe I mentioned this before to you, Hank, I can't remember. It's what I call the Jessica Fletcher syndrome. Yes. from uh, murder she wrote you know here's this old right. woman from cabot cove that's always falling over dead bodies you know i've never stumbled over dead bodies so you begin to wonder you know what's her problem you know right. why is she always stumbling over dead bodies so your suspension of disbelief becomes strained why is this one character always getting into this problem these problems right. uh, by the way i think the, the final resolution the only thing that would make sense for murder she wrote would be the uh, the finale which reveals that jessica Fletcher is a serial killer yeah. and that she's been you know framing everybody all along yeah then you know then my suspensions of disbelief would dissipate because then i then it would oh aha of course that's why it's happening right the, the second problem with it with a serious character is that it's hard to maintain jeopardy yeah is that you know somebody might put a gun against jessica fletcher's head in in an episode but you know that trigger's never going to be pulled as much as you might like it to be pulled because she's in next week's episode so it's hard to maintain that level of, of threat and to get that heart beating of that that viewer So, um, you know, I just didn't feel enthused about doing a series until I wrote Sandstorm. And here is this team of Sigma Force, these ex-Special Forces soldiers, you know, retrained in scientific disciplines to protect the world against various threats. And I thought, you know, I could build a series around a team versus necessarily one character uh so you know sigma novels are, are, are considered to be sort of ensemble casts yes there's sort of a yeah. you know gray's the main character for the most part but you know i bring in new characters uh other characters sort of bow out for a, a section the sh- spotlight might shift to another character even more so right. than gray sometimes um because that that allows the threat to come from many different directions i can maintain jeopardy because uh, sigma, no sigma force member is necessarily safe uh, as you've if you follow the series, oh yeah, you know, there have been surprising deaths and surprising maimings. Uh, I'm very cruel to my characters because <laughs> Sigma Force can always recruit a new member, right? So uh, uh, that got. Please me don't mess with thing. Gray. Please don't mess with Gray. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, the more you tell me that, the more I. <laughs> of course, of course. Do Do you
0: have a uh, you know a spreadsheet or a poster on the wall of something that, you know this. This person is safe. This person, eh, you never know. Like, how do you decide, you know, who you're going to maim or, or kill off? Is there any rhyme or reason or, you know, are you just wake up unhappy with someone?
2: <laughs> it's when someone tells me they really like a character, then it's you know, time to knock them off. No, no I'm just joking. It's uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so the, basically, that's one of the advantages of a series is that you get – uh, to ex- explore these characters' lives over the span of uh, many books, you know, and yeah. Map of Bones, the, the second book in the series, the book that sort of introduces Gray and his, and the team that you follow through, through the bulk of the, the rest of the series. And I should make it clear, by the way, is, you know, I tailor each book that if you've never read any of the previous books, you can jump right into Kingdom of Bones uh, and, and read it without having necessarily Read everything on that. not too many people have read my books in order uh, so yeah. if you feel like hopping in a kingdom of bones just just hop right in um but again over the breadth of the series uh you can do things with the characters that you can't do within the span of a novel you know map of bones you know say uh you know shoots gray but by book 16 they're married and they have a kid Right. it's hard to carry that arc from there to there over one book without without it being, you know, being farc- farcical. So, uh, you know, but over the course of 16 books, I can, I can, you know, I can manage to, to, to massage that relationship. Do I know everything that's going to happen with these characters? Nope. Uh, do I know some of the bigger arcs? Yep. Um, you know, a lot of the nuances I, I like to discover along the way. Um, at one point there was sort of a, a love triangle between uh, gray say sean and rachel um and i didn't to be honest i didn't know who he was going to end up with um and i was so unsure that at the end of one of my books uh you know he's in bed with somebody but i don't tell you who he's in bed with um you just know it's you know it's one of the two right and so at the end i just on social media i just got online and said you know you know who do you think is in bed with gray and who do you want to be in bed with Gray, and I, I took that I took those comments to heart. I was, you know, listening to their feedback and why, and, and that helped me uh, massage which which direction I was going to have that fall. So some of it is you know on the fly. Other thing, there's some big arcs that I do know how those characters are going to land. I love it.
0: Um, one thing we know we're going to get from uh, a Sigma Force novel is you're going to find some weird, obscure historical fact. <laughs> uh, and then you're going to find an equally weird uh scientific fact or some new discovery uh or some theoretical thing that that shows some hope of becoming a reality and you find a way to merge those things together in you know with mind blowing consequences um what what were those uh initial uh, discoveries or things that interested you that that then brought
2: you to weave those things together to make the story. Well, yeah, because again, you know, besides being you know my my main career, uh, well, I guess I'm still a practicing veterinarian. I still do some volunteer work, but prior to that, you know, on my list of things I want to be when I grow up, underneath veterinarian was uh, was archaeologist. So I have a tendency to read a lot of you know these books about explorers, and so I was reading a book about uh, the uh, exploration of the Congo. And I was just really fascinated by the history and the and the brutality that occurred through there during the Belgian occupation of that area under King Leopold II. Um, And, you know, novels have been there. There's Heart of Darkness by Conrad, you know, sort of dealt with that type of uh, the brutality that was occurring during that period of time. But in in doing further research about that whole period of time, I I had stumbled upon this uh, this gentleman, uh, Reverend William Shepard. He was a uh, black missionary uh, out of Alabama who went to uh, the Congo to start a missionary. And he was basically armed only with like a, a box camera. And he was the one that more so than than Conrad or the newspapers, he was the one that sort of uh, with, you know, there's nothing like pictures with a thousand words. And he took he took photographs, that had a visual record of what was occurring. Um, and that sort of is what uh, was the turning to the moment that turned the tide against uh Leopold's reign in that area, so I like the fact that there was just this missionary armed with a box camera that you know changed the tide of that country. Uh, so you know I thought that would be a you know a fun story to tell, and and then again being the you know the author who's always looking for those historical mysteries, you know I found out about another historical figure again another another sort of black historical figure, uh, Prester John. He was uh, considered to be the uh, the first. Black Christian king of a great empire. Um, at this point, you know, he's considered to be mythological. Uh, he's the, the the legend is that he's descended from Balthazar, one of the three magis who visited, visited Christ in the right. manger. And for, you know, centuries, everybody believed he was a historical figure. Emissaries went into the jungle to look for him. The pope sent his own personal physician to go uh, try to make, uh, to make contact with this king. And... You know, Many of them vanished into the jungle and never seen again. Uh, others, the Portuguese people reported that they found this king in this vast empire. Um, other people did not find this king and dismissed this as rumor. And so over time, it was just considered to be uh, a fanciful story, it wasn't based on reality. But I'm always believing that, you know, any story has a kernel of truth. You know, right. any legend is usually based on something. So sure. that began, you know, wondering, you know, what if. Prester John did exist, you know, what what might have happened to his kingdom? Why did it vanish? Uh, and So that began the, the historical thread of the novel. This is mixing this uh, the history of the Congo from, uh, you know, Prester John during the, the you know, 11th, 12th, 13th century to the uh, 19th century. Reverend who's exposing the atrocities occurring in the Congo, uh, that began the, uh, the historical jumping off point for the story.
0: I, I saw you say I forget where I saw it. It was a, a video somewhere where you talked about the reality that every for every square yard there are something like eight hundred thousand or uh, viruses that literally fall from the sky. Um, when when you started and I'm I'm sure I butchered that uh, that fact, um, but when you started exploring that. Um, you know, there there comes a point where you're doing research and you're and you're just adding facts and facts and facts. Um, there comes a point where those facts then become threaded into a narrative and, and you figure out how Sigma Force can come in and and then who some of the other players are going to be. And and then how do these these colliding facts intervene into these people's lives? How did the, the story begin to unfold?
2: Well, again, I was, again, looking into not so much building a pandemic novel, though, I, you know, I'm always looking for the threat that's going to sort of uh, overhang uh, the character, the global threat, and then there's the yep. personal threats. Uh, so, you know, I knew there was going to be this this viral outbreak in Africa that was going to be, you know, turning humans into this adult, cat, you know, cat, cattle-like catatonic state at the same time. It's, it's turning us dull. It's ramping up the environment into this very hostile, very predatory, very um, toxic uh. Uh, danger so it's you know it's a perfect storm for you know wiping us out and uh so when i was reading about the, the, the viruses i said that i really wanted to deal with the weird biology of viruses and how they they tie into our own evolutionary history is that uh, you know i f- found this fact that you know, they believe that anywhere between 40 to 80 percent of the human dna uh, probably originated from viral invasions, you know, little pieces of virus became incorporated into to DNA during evolutionary development. Eventually, uh, that led to uh, the arrival of consciousness, even the, uh, the, our human consciousness is believed to be acquired from a viral invasion. There's a gene that all of us possess called the ARC gene. It's a gene that uh, basically controls the function of our synapses. Uh, it's, it regulates uh, our ability to think, and without that gene present, we would not uh, be the thinking beings that we are. And it has been now known that that is that virus that that little coat of, vi- of, of our DNA came from a virus. So. Uh, you know, now vi- virologists are believing what's called a virus world theory. They believe that, you know, viruses may have been uh, much more important in in, in evolutionary development that possibly the, even the uh, the source of life itself. And that uh, viruses are very much in into our evolutionary development. So me being the thriller writer, I'm thinking, well, you know, what if Mother Nature gets a little bit... Uh, tired of us and decides that uh, evolutionary, it's time to make some changes. Um, and if she's going to use a, a key to unlock that uh, that change, she's going to use a virus. So that became the thrust for building the story.
0: When you have a cast of characters like Sigma Force, um, and, and uh, how do you decide which character is going to kind of take center stage? You, you talked about how the the, um, the spotlight shines on different characters from time to time. Um, how do you decide who's next up on stage and, and who gets to kind of carry the story for lack of a,
2: a better term? It's, uh, it's mostly, I don't sort of pre-decide who's going to be the main character. It's more about what the story is. Uh, what serves the story is uh you know i'll build my story the history that the the, uh, the science and merge them together build my roller coaster of adventure then decide you know, who's the character that's best going to tell the story going forward um take bone labyrinth in uh, that mm-hmm. story uh it deals with uh again a little bit of human development uh the origin of human the human species it deals with neanderthals so i thought you know the best Person to tell a story about Neanderthals would be Kowalski. It's sort of the, uh, the, the dumb lug of the, uh, of the, uh, of the group. Uh, so, you know, the necessity then was okay, I'm going to write a story about Neanderthals. It's going to feature Kowalski as a point of view character for the very first time.
0: Things We Never Got Over. The new book by best selling author Lucy Score. Bearded Bad Boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama, even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough around the edges town where disputes are settled the old fashioned way with fists and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected, the niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home, with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones, but since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author, Lucy Score. An Innocent Client The first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room a beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's, but Dillard's commitment to the case Never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by Bookbub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with An Innocent Client, where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. Gotcha. Um, Jim, an interesting thing happens when you become a popular author. Um, as before, that happens as readers, most of us have a varied interest. Uh, I I can only um, think of a handful of people that only read one genre, and that's that's their thing. Um, I love thrillers. I love science fiction. I love fantasy. Um, and and I kind of rotate what, what I'm reading at the time, you know, a, a lot depending on what books are coming out or – but sometimes I just sure. want to fall into a series and just get lost in another world or something like that. Um, but as writers, when when you become a popular thriller author, um, you know, the the propensity is that everyone around you wants you to continue doing that thing that is – popular and that is making not only you but everyone else you know um have a successful life um but knowing you and you and i have talked about this a a little bit before um i know that you're also a big fan of fantasy and you would think that uh someone that writes you know scientific military thrillers uh and then someone that wants to write epic fantasy uh eh, you know i I don't know
2: (laughs) why Um, (laughs) yeah why why is that so um yes i i've got that question asked a lot but the starless crown
0: dropped uh a couple of months ago and it is epic and i love it and it how do i say this it feels like a james rollins novel um yet it has all of the epic fantasy stuff that i love um one, what what uh, what motivated you to to switch genres like that, and and the the bigger question that I would love to know is how did your team around you respond to the desire to want to shift gears and do something you know completely different?
2: Well, it, I should basically say that you know it's basically even though it seems an odd detour for James Rollins to be writing a fantasy novel, it's, it's for me as a writer, it's not, uh, I began my career, uh, writing a fantasy a year and a thriller a year. The fantasy was under a different pen name because I weirdly went from an unpublished author to suddenly there was two different publishing houses that wanted two books that I'd written that were, you know, initially rejected soundly, but eventually they found a home. Within one week I went from unpublished to two different genres two different publishing houses, two different pen names, life got very confusing for a while. Uh, so uh, for the first decade of my career, I was, I was writing, uh, you know, a fantasy novel a year and a thriller a year um, and eventually uh, James Rollins became a little more popular than James Clemens. Uh, There's a little more demand for more James Rollins titles, um, but I still, uh, for the rest of my career, I was always writing two books a year. I was always doing, uh, you know, the staccato paced thriller, whether it was Sigma or one of my standalones, and then something else. Um, you know, I, similar to you, I read a wide gamut of different genres growing sure. up. You know, if you look at my shelf over here, I've got fantasy, whole section of fantasy, a whole section of science fiction, thrillers, military books, um, adventure novels, the old pulp novels from the 30s and 40s. Um, and when I was first starting to be, you know, try to learn the ropes of how to write, you know, I heard you should write what you love to read, which makes sense. You know, some writers will try to pursue what's popular. Yeah. um they'll, they'll try to jump on that bandwagon and that's usually not successful you know to be able to write in a genre you need to you know read deeply in that genre you need to know what what's stale what's old you know what's going to feel fresh what's not right. um to really pull, to pull it off and so when i wrote a uh, subterranean my first thriller novel and you know it had telepathic marsupial creatures that live underneath antarctica so i thought i was writing science fiction yeah. uh my publisher informed me that no jim because you set your story in modern times not in the future clearly it's not science fiction you've written written a thriller i wasn't going to argue at this point because like i said that novel was rejected soundly so if someone was showing any inkling of interest i was not going to argue with them so i said yes it's a thriller yeah uh at the same time uh that novel was resounded so uh was rejected so resounded so so you know 49 different rejections, I'll admit that. It was the 50th agent that saw something with that first novel. Wow! Um, So I I began to thought, well, maybe I'm not that science fiction slash thriller writer. So I jumped to another genre that loved to read fantasy, began writing a fantasy novel. um, And eventually, like I said, both sold. Um, But over the years, uh, I've confused my publishing house a little bit. Um, Even these Sigma novels, um, they've got a fantastical element to them. They've got weird science that borders on science fiction. They've got, uh, you know, this big uh, uh, military adventure you know, woven into it. And they have a bunch of historical mysteries in it because that's everything that I love to read. So, you know, my publisher at one point, they at this point, Harper had, I don't know, maybe uh, published eight or nine of my novels. And I, I was invited to Harper's uh, offices for the first time in New York City. Never been there before. And so it's a oh, bit wow. intimidated and you're, you're you're put up in the top office floor in of this big board room with this long you know board table in there and the whole marketing department's there and the sales department and your editor and and uh the head of william morrow at that point you know stands up the other side of this long table and looks at me and goes jim you know we're having good success with your novels um but we have one problem And so well, what's the problem we don't know what you're writing <laughs> so i baffled them from the beginning <laughs> because i do have a tendency to blend genres even in the sigma novels yeah so uh and then as time went on i would do those other novels of the year the second novel of the year would be you know maybe i'm going to do a novel with it with a veterinarian so i wrote altar of eden uh and i had this idea for you know vampires in the vatican that became uh, the co-authored work with rebecca cantrell the blood gospel series so i have a tendency to wander off the path a little bit but ultimately, as, as as you might have noticed with *Starless Crown*, there is a, a fundamental commonality with my books. You know, you're yeah. gonna find a big adventure. There's gonna be a lot of weird animals in my books. Uh, it's gonna be you know a high paced you know high high you know paced staccato yeah. type of pacing to the novel. Uh, at the same time, I'm gonna you know honor the tropes of that genre you know for starless crown you're going to see it's going to feel like an epic fantasy uh it's it's going to read like an epic fantasy but hopefully those rollins readers that that dare wander off the path to follow me there will will find something that uh they're going to recognize they're going to recognize it as a a rollins novel well one thing that
0: i love is that your sigma uh books do blend genres. And and I, I love that you kind of pull in everything and all of your varied interests. I know that makes it difficult to know where to place the book in a bookstore sometimes. And, and I understand why publishing, you know, likes to have clear sure. genre delineations. I, I understand that you need to be able to sell the book and people need to know where to find it. Um, But I love that you mix things up and, um, you know, I never know exactly what to expect. And that's kind of one of the joys of reading one of your novels is that you don't know what to expect. You can take us literally anywhere. And I love that. Um, But there are, like you said, there's a staccato pace to the thrillers. And then fantasy has a tendency to kind of breathe a little to slow the pace down and really pay attention to the world building. And, you know. uh, I, I can name a number of fantasy books that may take four, five, six pages to just describe the 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 fauna you know around that you see. Um, you know, so there's there's a different a definite pace difference there when you're switching gears from a sigma novel and then writing a fantasy novel. Are there any things that you use to change your mindset to to? Uh, embrace the the difference in the writing style, which will then you know the reading style will follow. and do, do you pay attention to those things? does Does it make a difference in your preparation to write or or how you go about
2: the writing of that novel? Oh oh, definitely. I mean, there that's one of the things I, why I liked writing a fantasy novel a year and a thriller a year is you are you are working a different a different set of gears. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh when you're writing the Sakato Pace thriller, uh, there's a certain way uh I tackle that novel. There's a different way I write that novel. When I switch over to the fantasy, it's a totally different mindset. Um it is a lot of world building, it is slowing the pace down. It is you're you're allowed the luxury of a little bit more uh description than you necessarily can and they get can pull away with a uh with that modern day thriller. So it's a different pace and, and I enjoy that. And I think one of the reasons I like switching between those two genres and those two different paces is that I think if I wrote a staccato pace thriller after a staccato pace thriller after a staccato pace thriller, uh, I might feel like I'm getting bored with it. You know, to me, I like switching gears. It makes me it feels fresh to me. It feels yeah. new. You know, uh, you know, each genre has their own. You know, things that I enjoy writing and things I don't. Uh, you know, when I'm writing a you know a a thriller I'm notorious for you know painting my characters into a corner and not really knowing how to get them out of that corner and at that yeah. point I'm thinking you know I, I need that magic wand to write about now to get these characters out of that car- corner whereas I'm wearing the fantasy I'm thinking you know I've got these this cast of characters spread across this continent and I realized uh-oh that group needs to know this information somebody needs to quickly invent the telephone uh yeah <laughs> so there's you know certain certain things that things seem like oh the when I'm People say, what do you what's, what's easier to write, fantasy or the thriller? My answer is whatever I'm not writing now, it's always easier. Uh, it's when you're writing a certain the thriller, that seems really hard. When you're writing the fantasy, that seems really hard. And so it's, a, it's fun switching the gears. I tried one point. It was when I was writing Sandstorm, uh, again, the first book of the, in the uh, Sigma series, and one of my fantasies. And uh, I tried writing on them simultaneously you know doing a chapter of one then a chapter the other uh, it took me probably twice as long to finish those novels than if i had just done them separately because just switching from you know having to get my mind out of that type of mindset and and into the other mindset uh it was like stripping those gears in my head at that point um so i I don't i can't do that anymore i know i have to finish the thriller and then do my fantasy then do the thriller i've got to stay in my lane yeah um Jim, writers uh,
0: have a tendency to spend a lot of time alone. Uh, you know, the the act of writing is a very solitary pursuit. Um, it's a lot of times just you and sure. the keyboard, or you know, the the notebook, whatever your medium is. And um, you know, and then later in the process, other people come in, and you know, there becomes a, a bit of collaboration between you and an editor, and then publisher and. You know, but but for the vast majority of that book's life, uh, it's just you and and the keyboard. Uh, we have recently launched a community, uh, the Storycraft Cafe, where writers can come in and commiserate with other writers, can share their work and, you know, get feedback and 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 that sort of thing. Or just to encourage one another when you're having a bad day um, as, as someone who I, I would I would assume, spends a lot of your time alone in your office. Are there any things that you do to maintain community and to, um, you know, to to make sure that you're staying connected to humans? <laughs> you know, um, what does
2: community mean to you? Well, for me, it's, uh, you know, I, I have this sort of built in version of, of uh, story craft in, in a critique group that I belong to. Nice. I, it's, 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 it's 12 of us. Uh, they have been with the same group now for going on 30 years. Wow. Uh, they, I was with the same group before I was ever published. Uh, they, they, you know, they've seen my early short fiction that's now buried in my backyard. Never to see the light of day. Uh, they've seen my rudimentary you know, steps from writing, trying to craft short stories to working on my first novel. And they're the ones that, uh, you know, are right now critiquing Cradle of Ice, the second book in the fantasy novel. So we meet uh, twice a month, and initially it was at a a restaurant. Uh, Now, of course, it's via Zoom, uh, though hopefully we'll eventually get back to going to restaurants again, so we have more, you know, face time. But, you know, we share chapters, we critique each other's work, we chat about life in general, we talk about writing in general. Uh, it's a mixture of published and unpublished authors. Um, uh, we have somebody as young as twelve working in the group now. Uh, right. That we have somebody in their eighties that's working on a story. So uh, they come from all different uh, aspects of life. So it's 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 nice getting you know, 12 first eyes on my work. Uh, yeah. you know, they're great for getting different inputs. You know, find they, they challenge me. You know, as much as I expect them to bow down when I walk into the room. They don't, they know me from the beginning. So they're right. very honest with their critiques and they will, they will hold my feet to the fire. They will, you know, point when I'm, you know, maybe, you know, trying to slide something past that needs you know, a little bit more work. Um, so it's good to have that sense of community that, because uh, writing is a solitary, solitary job. You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, you know, try to physically do as much as I can, you know, whether it's walking the dogs, whether it's kayaking, whether it's, you know, hiking somewhere, uh, Occasionally still doing some caving. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, try to physically keep myself, you know, active. And that's in, that involved a community that's not necessarily focused on literary, you know, pursuits, but is a way of sort of disconnecting and keeping my, my sense of isolation limited. I love
0: that. Um, I, I have a question that I've been asking people a lot lately, and I'd, I'd love to get your take on this. Um, what is a piece of writing advice, uh, good or bad? Or or maybe you have one of each, who who knows, that has stuck with you um, throughout your writing career. Maybe it was something that that opened your eyes and, and, you know, unlocked a a lock for you. Or maybe it's just a horrible piece of advice that you look (laughs) back and go, oh, man, I'm glad I didn't take that or I did take it. And, you know, now I'm, you know, having to shovel my way out of it.
2: Okay. I'll tell you a couple of things. Uh, okay. First, the, the, good, the good advice, and this is something I, I still adhere to today, is that you know, when I was, again, I, I had no formal training in writing. If you read any of my books, he'll go, he's had no formal training in writing. Um, it was all learned by reading. You know, I was yeah. an avid reader and I thought, you know, I think if everybody's an avid reader eventually, think, oh, it'd be really cool to walk into a bookstore one day and see my book on the shelf. Yeah. Um. So there's that, you know, that hidden, you know, sort of voice in the back of your head that's whispering give it a try give it a try um so i had to sort of self teach myself the the whole craft of writing the publishing world how to get things published where, how do you approach an agent how to write a query letter etc cetera, etc cetera. but one of the adv- is this is the 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 uh, you've heard this probably a thousand times that you, you need to write every day yeah they need to you need to practice your craft you should expect to write a million words before you should expect to be published you know you have to hone that skill and it's, it's just not going to you're not going to sit down uh without ever written a word before and write you know the great american novel it's going to take some practice but i'll add my own personal caveat to that that i've learned from experience is not only should be should you be writing every day you should be reading every night is that again? I mentioned before, if you want to write in a certain genre, you need to know that genre well. So you need to yeah. read deeply in that genre. Also, when you're struggling with learning how to write, uh, when you're struggling with your 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 day of writing, and you're thinking, "Gosh, this dialogue feels stale," or you know, "How do I describe this character without looking in a mirror?" Um, so that forms a little knot in your head during mm-hmm. your writing day, and as you read at night. And you see how an author has tackled that subject, or how oh that's that's cool how he described that character, that's cool what he's doing with dialogue. So then, it begins untie that knot in your head, and your writing is going to become incrementally better. So if you're writing every day and reading every night, your prose is just going to naturally get stronger. Right. Fantastic. And today I still do I still do that. I mean I have a notebook by my bed uh, that whenever I'm reading at night, uh, if an author does something I've never seen an author do before, they use something really unique, or there's a turn of phrase, or I jot it down, you know, even today, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'll see an author do something, I'm going to try to incorporate that in my next novel, so even though I'm now writing my 40th novel, I know, mean, I'm still reading every night, looking for ways to, to, you know, tweak my own writing better, so, you know, if I can do it after publishing 40 novels, you know, if you're a beginning writer, I really encourage you, you still need to keep reading. You know, I've heard yes. authors say, gosh, you know, I don't have time to read anymore. I don't get them. Uh, to me, it just seems no. mystifying that they're, you know, I love reading to begin with. That's why I'm writing. I, you know, if, if that, that stole my love of reading, uh, I would not write. Um, yeah. I love reading that much. You know, I just could, uh, I couldn't give that up for the sake of writing a novel. Uh, the other side of the spectrum advice that I think is, uh, is wrong is Steve Barry, uh, Good friend of mine. Uh, I love Steve. Yeah, Steve's a great, great character. Hopefully I'm going to see him in October. Uh, and uh, he says, you should never have an exclamation point in your book. <laughs> I don't agree with that. There are many exclamation points in my books. So we have a an ongoing war about that. I love that.
0: It's it, it's kind of like Stephen King's advice about adverbs, you, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah that's uh, hard and fast rules are made to be broken that's for sure
2: exactly yeah
0: so james what, what are you working on now you you mentioned the the second fantasy book in the series is coming out uh next year
2: Yes, yeah, be out next year it's okay. uh, called cradle of ice um just saw the cover for it and as i said i usually have to just say yeah i love it no they thank me the this option the cover for, for cradle of ice is beautiful uh working with my right now with the uh graphic artist who did the animal sketches that you see in uh in starless crown is continuing yeah. with the, the creatures in the second book so working with her on that nice beautiful work so i'm really excited for people to see what she's done with this next book novel uh working on of course uh the uh next sigma novel which is uh deals with uh i've described this it deals with uh the uh the aboriginal mythology it deals with the colonial history of of Australia it deals with um, the uh, expansion of the Chinese military into space and it's a great treasure hunt for a mysterious artifact that might prove that we are not alone in the universe so that's coming up next in the signal
0: can't wait can't wait um when people are hearing this you can run out and grab the new sigma force novel um the new fantasy novel starless crown is out everywhere already um go pick up kingdom of bones uh you will not be disappointed i promise uh james is is your website the best place for people to kind of dig into all the great stuff you're doing
2: yeah, I always consider my website to be the encyclopedia of James Rollins. You know, if you want to know all about the books, or about tour dates and details, about, uh, there's a section if you're a writer, sort of a Q&A about writing questions, there's in there too. Uh, for just the day in, day out, what's going on with my life, you know, I'm on social media, uh, probably too much. Uh, I could probably get another book written if social media was ever invented. Um, so uh, again, whether it's, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I'm on all the different sites for the day-to-day. Life of James Rollins.
0: And jamesrollins.com is the, the, the site where they can connect with all those places, right? Exactly. Thank you very much for mentioning yeah, that. Great. That's helpful. <laughs> well, James, it's been so much fun chatting. Um, let's do it again next
2: year. All right. We'll put a note in the calendar.
1: Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves The Jason Crane Series. Seven men ran the farce. The seven witch hunters the court of Oyer and Terminer. They tortured and lied and mutilated and murdered. They knew those women up in Salem Village were no witches. Their true target was the coven hidden in their own midst here in Salem Town. They meant to hang the innocent until the sisters surrendered. Did they surrender? Said Jason. No. Was that the wrong decision? To let innocent women die and save themselves? What do you think? Should the coven have fought openly? Created more hysteria by swooping in on broomsticks and casting spells over Salem? Should they have killed the judges? There are no right decisions. That is the horror of a witch hunt. Everything you do condemns you. Question the judge, thou art a defiant witch. Question his laws, you question the king, and thou art a treasonous witch. Question his superstitions, you question scripture, and thou art a blasphemous witch. Pity the condemned, you pity witches, and thy Christian mercy proves thy collusion with Satan. Witch hunters are not just bad lawyers practicing bad law. They are men who place the ends before the means. They choose their victims. A man, a woman, an entire race, and mark them for extinction. All evidence is damning evidence. All associations are damning associations. All infractions, and who among us is without sin, are unforgivable infractions. Their own failings and abuses of power are shrugged away as mere vigor in pursuit of the public good. A witch hunter will have you by whatever means necessary. If he cannot find evidence, he will create evidence. He will entrap you and question you and distort what you say. He will walk you through the night until your feet bleed, strip you and stripe you, dress you in your own filth until you forget you are human. He will torture your friends until they betray you. And if anyone dares to weep at your hanging, he will drag them to Gallows Hill in the back of the next ox cart. Any man can be a witch hunter. All it takes is hatred and arrogance and the preening self-regard that proclaims my deeds are always good because they are my deeds. The seven judges of the Salem court were such men. But one witch stood up to them. She stood up to centuries of unchallenged murderous dogma and pronounced the magic word, no, They burned her for it.